When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. I also wanted to mention that this episode deals with some particularly violent adult themes that may not be suitable for children. Like pretty much everyone else in this story, the early years of Atalos II were defined by treachery and war. In the year he was born, 220 BC, his father, King Atalos I, had lost the lion's share of the Pergamine kingdom to a brilliant Seleucid commander named Achaeus. As mentioned back in episode T2, Achaeus was a cousin of Antiochus III. He'd been charged with checking Pergamine power while Antiochus dealt with the other crises that plagued his early reign. Before too long, according to Polybius, Achaeus exercised dominion throughout Asia on this side Taurus, while Atalos I was reduced within the limits of his ancestral domains and shut up within the walls of Pergamon which is to say the Pergamine kingdom was staggering on the ropes. Then, as Polybius notes, Achaeus, puffed up by his good fortune, assumed the diadem and adopted the title of king, severing his Anatolian conquests from his cousin Seleucid Empire. It was a fairly predictable act of hubris, and it started the clock on his downfall. Relations between Pergamon and the Seleucids were frequently contentious, but Atalos I knew that the new Seleucid king, Antiochus III, desperately needed a win. He also knew that a distant Antiochus was much, much better than a way-too-close Achaeus. Enemies of enemies did the usual thing, and as Polybius relates, in 217, Antiochus crossed Mount Taurus and, after making a treaty of alliance with King Atalos, entered upon the war against Achaeus. And yes, I know their names all sound alike, but you can't blame me for that. Years of war eventually concluded with the rebel Achaeus bottled up in Sardis and a two-year siege only truncated by deceit. 
Under pretense of a rescue by trusted allies, Achaeus was lured from the safety of his citadel, clamped in chains, and brought to Antiochus's camp. Polybius relates the poignant denouement, where Antiochus, seeing his captive cousin, fell into a state of speechless astonishment and, for a considerable time, could not utter a word. And, finally, overcome by a feeling of pity, burst out in tears. Caused, I have no doubt, and this is Polybius speaking, by this exhibition of the capriciousness of fortune, which defies precaution and calculation alike. To which all I can say is, Amen, Polybius, and you certainly hit this era on the head. But, just in case you'd think he'd gotten soft, Antiochus had Achaeus killed, sewed up his head in the skin of an ass, and had his body impaled. This drama, played out in the first years of Atalos II's life, was par for the course in Anatolia, or, for that matter, in any other Hellenistic kingdom. It also ended up paying some pretty huge dividends. While Antiochus III headed off east to reconquer the lands of Central Asia, Atalos I used his lengthy absence to get Pergamon back on track, mainly by welding his kingdom's fortunes to the growing power of Rome. The alliance was mainly built on war, with Atalos I backing Rome against Macedon, then after he died in 197, by his son Eumenes II supporting Rome against Antiochus III. The Treaty of Apamea, which hobbled the Seleucids, was a massive windfall for the Pergamine kingdom, which was given control of Phrygia, Lydia, Pisidia, Pamphylia, and parts of Lycia. The new King Eumenes II was Atalos II's older brother. And whenever Rome voiced displeasure with aspects of Eumenes's rule, his brother Atalos was sent to smooth things over. Over decades of embassies, Atalos II became so beloved that Rome even offered to back his play if he wanted to seize the throne. But, as Livy reports, Pergamon's power was upheld solely by the concord of the brothers, and Atalos declined the offer. But it was also true that, with Eumenes II in declining health, there was no need to force the issue. Eumenes died in 159, and Atalos II married his widow Stratonice and claimed the title of king. At the time, Atalos was 61, though unlike his slightly older brother, he was still in excellent health. There was one potential rival, Eumenes' son Atalos III, but since he was only 11 at the time, and Atalos II had just married his mother, the boy wasn't too much of a threat. In fact, Atalos II decided to keep him around as a potential royal heir. At the time, the math probably looked pretty reasonable. Atalos II would maybe rule for a decade or so before passing away, then Atalos III would inherit the throne sometime in his early 20s. 
But, as you may have guessed, none of this actually happened. First of all, Attalus II ended up living and ruling for another 26 years, which I guess you can chalk up to good genes, clean living, maybe a little hot yoga. But it was also a very tangible product of a relatively stable Anatolia. Pergamon's role of tennis ball machine, flinging usurper after usurper into Syria, had finally had the desired outcome. A Seleucid empire that was much too weak to mess with Anatolia. The Ptolemies had also given up on the region, which meant that it really came down to the local powers of Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Pontus. Pergamon and Cappadocia were extremely tight, especially since Attalus II had helped Ariarathes V recover his throne back in the early 150s. Pergamon and Pontus had had an alliance since back in 179. And in 149, at the age of 71, Attalus II had teamed up with Rome to overthrow the Bithynian king, Prusius II, and replace him with his son, Nicomedes II. All of which is a long way of saying that one of the most common causes of premature death, warfare, was mostly off the table. Attalus II's extremely long reign also impacted his nephew. Entering the 130s BC, Attalus III was entering his 30s. And you may be picturing some energetic prince, like Demetrius I in Rome, scheming incessantly to kill his uncle and claim his rightful throne. If you did, you would be totally mistaken. Because Attalus III had way more interest in his various hobbies, including gardening, medicine, and bronze working, than in ruling the kingdom of Pergamon. And while those hobbies may have been intentionally cultivated by Attalus II to neutralize a potential rival, as the old king's health began to fail, he may have regretted his success. King Attalus II of Pergamon finally died in 138 BC at the age of 82, at which time Attalus III, unwilling and completely unsuited, inherited the Pergamine throne. It's worth mentioning that, like Demetrius II, Antiochus VII, and Cleopatra Thea, King Attalus III was a great-grandchild of Antiochus the Great through his mother, Queen Stratonice. So again, the whole Thea series is just one big family rivalry. What we know of Attalus III's reign is not particularly encouraging. Diodorus Siculus reports that Attalus III, being of a cruel and bloody disposition, oppressed his subjects with many slaughters and grievous calamities. He describes the new king murdering his father's friends, including Pergamine governors and military leaders, then killing his own friends along with their families out of fear they were plotting against him. Justin continues that Attalus III, by the murder of his friends and the execution of his kinsmen, defiled the flourishing kingdom which he had received.
He falsely claimed that his aged mother, then that his wife Berenice, had been killed by villainy on the part of his victims. So, reading between the lines, Attalos III apparently killed both his wife and mother, then tried to shift the blame. After this insane outburst of violence, again, this is Justin talking, he assumed shabby clothing, let his beard and hair grow long, as people on trial do, and no longer went out in public or appeared before the people. He seemed to be paying his penalty to the shades of those whom he had killed. Justin also notes, though you may have guessed, that Atalos III had no regard for the administration of his kingdom. Five years into his horrible reign, while pursuing yet another hobby, Atalos III fell ill from sunstroke and died six days later. In his will, the Roman people were named as his heirs. Which is a reality show record scratch of an entirely different color. So much so that it just drove me to mix two entirely unrelated metaphors. Hellenistic kings had always been generous with military support and cash donations, but no previous ruler had gifted Rome with an entire Hellenistic kingdom. The year this happened, 133 BC, Syria was basking in a golden age of quasi-semi-stability. Queen Cleopatra Thea was 31 and had ruled the kingdom for 17 years. First with Alexander Ballas, then with Demetrius II, and now with Demetrius's brother, the 24-year-old Antiochus VII. And while that's a pretty long run, few of Thea's regnal years could be reasonably described as stable. No, the current situation was relatively new, and mainly the result of her latest husband. Finding a divided and fragmenting empire, Antiochus VII had done the hard work of imposing imperial unity. Though he'd also had some pretty good luck, and that empire was much reduced. As historian John D. Granger notes, the territory the couple now ruled consisted of the urbanized areas of Syria from the Taurus Mountains to the Sinai Desert, which was fringed by semi-independent or independent minor states along the northern and eastern borders. But still, for the first time in recent memory, the Seleucids had a fighting chance. If there was ever a time not to rock the boat, then 133 was it. And, to be honest, despite the ink I just spilled talking about it, the territorial handoff of Atalos III didn't have much immediate impact. At least not in Syria. No, the real threat was purely internal. Because Antiochus VII was set on a course that threatened all his gains. What was it? Well, he'd begun to pull together an army for the long-delayed Parthian campaign. It's hard to imagine that Cleopatra Thea didn't argue forcefully against the plan, despite the fact that one main goal was rescuing Demetrius, the father of several of her children. But all things considered, it was just way too risky a proposition.
Yes, the kingdom was currently quiet, and yes, she was capable of governing alone. But unlike when Demetrius marched off, there was no spare brother to 911 if things started taking a nosedive. Nevertheless, Antiochus persisted, and soon enough Thea was distracted by a major family drama. Toward the end of 132 BC, Thea learned that her mother, Cleopatra II, had rebelled against her own brother and former husband, King Ptolemy VIII Physcon. As covered back in episode T6, after King Ptolemy VI was killed at the Battle of the Enoparos River, his brother Physcon had usurped the throne by marrying Cleopatra II and killing her son, the boy King Ptolemy VII. Justin gives us a bit of color, that color being exclusively red, recording that Ptolemy killed the boy in his mother's arms amidst the arrangements for the banquet and the rites of marriage, and entered his sister's bed still dripping with the gore of her son. We all go running for the gallows humor, but this is some dark, horrific stuff. It also apparently captured the tone of his overall reign. Again, going by Justin, blood flowed daily in every quarter. Ptolemy also divorced his sister, forcing himself on her virgin daughter and then marrying her. That virgin daughter was Thea's younger sister, the Ptolemaic princess, now Ptolemaic queen, Cleopatra III. At the time of our story, 132 BC, Cleopatra III was 24, about the same age as Thea's husband, Antiochus VII. We know very little about the first half of Cleopatra III's life, but in 145, when Physcon became king, things took a horrendously dark turn. There's no way of sugarcoating this, in his first year in power, Physcon forced himself on his young niece, and the result was Cleopatra's pregnancy. In 143, at the age of 14, she gave birth to a child named Ptolemy, the future Ptolemy IX. In 141 came their second child, a girl named Tryphena, and in 139 came the third, the future Ptolemy X. Along the way, as Justin noted, Physcon married Cleopatra III and divorced Cleopatra II. Physcon's reign was also defined by the mass expulsion of intellectuals and a mass exodus of Ptolemaic nobles appalled by his casual atrocities. In 132, according to Justin, Physcon feared a plot against his life, and so slipped away into exile with the son whom he had had by his sister, and also with his wife. Whether the plot was real or imagined, and it's easy to imagine it being real, Physcon took refuge on Cyprus. With him, as mentioned, were Cleopatra III, their three young children, and Physcon's eldest son, the only child he'd had with his sister Cleopatra II, the 12-year-old Ptolemy Memphites. 
Whether or not she'd plotted against him, the moment he left, Cleopatra II took the throne. She had near-universal support, at least in the capital of Alexandria, and Fizcon was forced to hire a mercenary army to try to recover his kingdom. Meanwhile, the Alexandrines had a field day tearing down Fizcon's statues and monuments. And, according to Justin, this was the act that compelled Fizcon to get personal. Thinking this had been done from affection for his sister, Cleopatra II, Fizcon killed the son he had by her, the twelve-year-old Ptolemy Memphites. He then dismembered the body, set it in a basket, and had it presented to the mother at a banquet on her birthday. And I think we're all going to need a moment with that one. Again, quoting Justin, the incident brought revulsion and grief to the entire city as well as the queen. The royal palace was set ablaze while the nobles displayed the mangled limbs to the people and made them see from the murder of his son what they could expect from their king in the future. For the first time in Thea's adult life, the Ptolemaic kingdom was in civil war, which made the relative stability of Syria all the more ironic. At some level, Thea may have sympathized with the horrible circumstances of her mother and sister. As for what dark thoughts she harbored about Fizcon, we'll leave those for Thea alone. For Antiochus, ironically, this was pretty good news. An Egypt convulsed by civil war was unlikely to harbor designs on Syria, which gave him a little additional latitude to pursue his Parthian plans. And at about the same time, he got more good news from Anatolia. Because, as it turned out, Rome was having a bit of trouble collecting its recent inheritance. I mean, they hadn't lost the receipt or anything. It's just that Attalus III had never really run the idea of willing Pergamon to Rome by the nobles and officials who governed his kingdom. And it turned out there were quite a few who weren't too happy with the deal. So, in 132 BC, they supported a man named Aristonicus taking power as King Eumenes III. Justin describes Aristonicus as the son of the former king, Eumenes II, by a mistress he'd had named Ephesia, which makes this basically an Alexander Ballas-type situation. And much like that, the kingdom of Pergamon effectively split down the middle, with half the cities supporting the Romans and the rest Eumenes III. The new king pursued a two-pronged strategy, attacking the cities that favored Rome while freeing agricultural slaves to gain additional support. His cause was aided by a weak and disorganized Roman response under the former consul Licinius Crassus, who, as Justin reports, joined battle with his army in disorder, suffered defeat, and paid with blood. Again, all good news for Antiochus VII, 
who could check Anatolia along with Egypt on his list of things not to worry about. And by the following year, 131, his expedition was ready. Justin records an army of 80,000. And even if those numbers are inflated, it's a pretty impressive accomplishment. It included contingents from neighboring territories, including a Judean force commanded by Hyrcanus. For Thea, it all must have looked pretty similar to Demetrius's army from a decade earlier. She could only hope, for her dynasty's sake, that they wouldn't meet the same fate. Thea remained in Antioch with the royal heirs. Demetrius's sons, the 13-year-old Seleucus and 12-year-old Antiochus, and her son by Antiochus VII, the 2-year-old Antiochus. But, oddly enough, one royal princess accompanied the expedition. A teenage daughter of Thea and Demetrius named Laodice. Eusebius also reports a son of Thea and Antiochus VII named Seleucus going along as well. But any such son would have been an infant, which seems extremely unlikely. Once they left for the river crossing at Seleucia Zugma, Thea was forced to rely on dispatches to track the army's progress. The first potential issue dealing with Osroes, the new Nabataean king of Edessa, evaporated on contact, as Osroes apparently made the smart move of offering military support, which was just the type of pragmatic flexibility that had helped Edessa thrive for centuries. It was several more weeks before Thea got word of Antiochus's first encounter with the Parthians. According to Josephus, a Parthian general named Indates had arrayed his forces near the Lycus River, in the territory of Adiabene, to halt the Seleucid advance. According to Justin, this first contest of rival forces was handily won by Antiochus. Later dispatches would have marked two more victories against Parthian forces before Antiochus scored his first major coup, recapturing the city of Babylon. The original power base of Seleucus I was an extremely potent political symbol, and Antiochus had put the campaign on hold and decided to winter in the region. He ordered that gold victory coins be minted with the legend Magus Euergetes, which made Antiochus the first Seleucid king to call himself the Great, since, well, Antiochus the Great. If Thea was encouraged by the early success, it was also likely tempered by the knowledge that Demetrius had fought the Parthians for years and still ended up their captive. From nearby Cyprus, just offshore, Fizcon continued to wage his campaign to reclaim the throne of Egypt. While beyond the Taurus in Anatolia, the war between Rome and Pergamon continued to rage. While Pergamon itself was divided, the other Anatolian kingdoms were united in their unwavering support for Rome. Among the boldest and most committed was King Ariarathes V of Cappadocia, who apparently took a leading role in confronting Eumenes III. 
And in 130 BC, in the midst of a battle, he paid the price with his life. On the death of Ariarathes V, the rule of Cappadocia fell to his son, the young Ariarathes VI. But with him being so young, actual power was held by the widowed queen Nysa, which is likely just how she'd planned it. You see, according to Justin, the queen had birthed six children of male sex by King Ariarathes, but she feared that she would not long remain in control of the kingdom once any of them grew up, so she resorted to murder, killing five of them by poison. Taking a quick dip into that spider's nest of a mind, Nysa likely poisoned each son in turn as soon as their younger brother had been born. So she'd always have one, the youngest and weakest, to rule through. And yeah, I know this episode's basically turned into one long bloody chamber of horrors, but, well, I hear Game of Thrones was popular. Oh, I should also mention that Queen Nysa of Cappadocia was sister of the current Pontic king, Mithridates V. And while Mithridates V was loyal to Rome, his five-year-old son would grow up to become one of Rome's greatest enemies, and also no stranger to poison himself, the future king Mithridates the Great. Leaving aside events in Anatolia, the eastern dispatches brought promising news. Granger notes that after the Seleucid conquest of Babylon, coins were minted for Antiochus VII at Seleucia on the Tigris, the old Elemian capital of Susa, and even the Median capital of Ecbatana, which all combined to tell a tale of some pretty remarkable progress. Justin reports on Antiochus's growing momentum. All the peoples were defecting to him, and the Parthians were left with nothing but the lands of their fathers. Granger notes that Antiochus had likely gained the support, or at least submission, of the Cherusina, Elemius, Adiabene, Media Atropatine, and possibly Persis. He'd likely arranged for Hispeosthenes, his most dependable ally in the region, to hold the satrapy of Babylonia while Antiochus marched on further east. Forced to retreat into Media, Justin reports that the Parthian king everywhere tried to catch Antiochus by subterfuge, since he could not beat him by force. Eventually, Thea got the news that the Parthian king had gone so far as to ask for terms of peace. According to Diodorus Siculus, Antiochus replied that he would grant peace on these conditions. That his brother Demetrius was freed from captivity and released. That the Parthian king evacuated the territory which he had occupied. And that, content with his ancestral realm, he paid tribute to Antiochus. Thea must have felt that summoning and marrying Antiochus VII had succeeded beyond her dreams. Regardless of Demetrius's fate, her dynasty was secure, her kingdom reunited, and the Seleucid Empire might again hold sway to the lands of Central Asia.
with Parthia humbled and both Egypt and Anatolia fragmented. The 34-year-old Cleopatra Thea was poised to become one of the world's most powerful monarchs, only rivaled by the power of Rome or the lands of the distant east. And then, in 129, came the news that brought everything crashing down. Antiochus VII had fallen in battle, and the Seleucid army had been destroyed. Hi there, my name is Derek, and I'm the host of the Hellenistic Age podcast, a history show covering Alexander the Great to Cleopatra. I love the history of the Seleucid Empire and Greco-Bactria just as much as fans of the ancient world, and in my podcast, we'll be going in-depth about them and the rest of the Hellenistic world. From the Punic Wars to the Library of Alexandria, we'll be journeying 300 years and 5,000 miles of history, and you can find the podcast on the platform of your choice or by heading to www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com.